you know, after every Dharma talk, um, Sotar asks me for a title, and I'll just say, just pick something, because I talked about 20 different things, uh, and it's very difficult uh, to uh, narrow it down to a particular a particular topic, um, because life is like that. You no, know, it doesn't come to us topically. You know, uh, it just comes as it comes, and we have to like unpack what is happening right here, right now, and uh, and what we see uh, is the result of our unpacking what we've understood to be right here in front of us right now and our response to what we have understood based on the skills or lack of skills that we that we have and that's the the nature of of our world i used to feel bad about it um because every place i i teach they ask for a topic i'm like just to pick something and just let me know what it is and i'll talk a little bit about that too um and uh, but I don't feel bad about it because as I begin to read the 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 suttas, the uh, dharma talks that the Buddha gave, when I look at the title that some great scholar and deep yogi determined, I, I look at that title and I'm like, where did he get that from? That has nothing to do with what the Buddha was talking about in in this sutta. You know, but that was my perception. That was the thing that jumped out for me. That was my nutriment, what I needed to eat. And, and whoever decided what it would be called, that was, that was theirs. That's what jumped out for them. And see, if we understood this, we wouldn't, uh, suffer as much, uh, in, the, in the world because we wouldn't, uh, try to, we wouldn't have an expectation of everyone seeing what we see, hearing things the way we heard it and understanding things the way we understand it. But, and even though we say we don't, we really do. And that's why we are so upset when we can't make a person understand something from our side or that we can't come to uh, an agreement. I want to do it this way and you want to do it that way. So now I'm going to get all frustrated with you because I don't see why we can't do it this way. And, you know, and that's how that mind just starts, that starts to run, that mind that's, they're so wrapped up, so wrapped up in me, my, and mine that we don't even realize we're wrapped up in it. We thought, I'm not like that at all, but totally, we're totally like that. And so, uh, and so the whole purpose of this practice is to help us really to see ourselves, you know, because the thing is to know the Dharma is to know oneself and to know oneself is to know the 10,000 things because on a certain level we are not disconnected from anything that is. And so, uh, from our grossest understanding, we see and know ourselves as an individual person. But the more that our, and the, the vaster our, uh, uh, capacity becomes in consciousness, the more we see our interconnectedness. Not just with other people, but with everything. Not just with animate objects, but inanimate objects. And we find that if everything comes from, uh, a, a, a like a source uh, that gives it life, then everything is alive on a certain level, even though we call it inanimate or we call it dead by our reckoning and by our, lab- our labeling. And because we are so rooted and grounded naturally in the tuition that we have received over the years, that that's the information that comes to us from the outside in in our books, what we're taught in class, what our teachers teach us, and and what things we see, uh, and taste, and touch, and smell, uh, and and think based on what we see, taste, touch, and smell, uh, it distorts the structure of natural appearances, and so we don't really see things as they are. We see things as we are, uh, and so. A part of this, the greatest part of this practice then, is deconstructing uh, our own views and notions about things uh, and coming to that still point within ourselves so that uh, what we see and understand is not tripped by our perception of things that is partly rooted in self-preservation uh, and, and self-love, and self-love. And so this is a tall order. 
it's 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 a lifetime endeavor, you know, to continually be looking. But the thing that is that when we look, it's like being at the optometrist, you know. And he, well, now they do stuff by laser. I think they just have a little piece of equipment like this now that they hold in front of your eyes. But the last time I went to the eye doctor, had this big piece of machinery they swing in here, and they do these clicks, and they, you know, pop in and out different different lenses, and they say, how does this look? And now that's blurry. How does this look? It looks like blown up too big. How does this look? And then you say, oh, that's perfect. That one, that one, that one is perfect. It's perfect. And then it clicks one more time and says, how about now? You know, and and so it's like that as we start to um, as the scales start to fall from our eyes, the shackles also start to fall from uh, our heart, and we find ourselves living in a different way in this world. And we all say we want that. Yeah, we say we want that. Um, but we say that we're confused about exactly how to get there, where where to find it. You know, and it's not so much a, of a confusion as it is an aversion to um, letting go of our views. And so the Buddha says to come to a place where things can be made plain, we have to empty our cup. And it doesn't mean then that we just accept anything that anybody says, but he says you put it to the test. Now before you say, well, I don't believe that because you never had that experience, well, you don't have any basis by which to believe it or not. You know, just hear it, ponder it, and if it's something that you're interested in, go the ways of the ones who've gone that way, who had the experience, who know it is true, and see if it's true for you. If it is, then you can embrace it and now know it is true. If not, then just forget about it. Just let them hold their own views, the same way you hold some views that other people don't agree with. It's okay. <laughs> and so... We have these two kinds of languages. One we might call ordinary people language, and the other we might call Dharma language. And when we speak in ordinary people language, it can tend to be narrow and, and confined, you know, and it's, uh, so, has a way of being so personal to us that that others might have some difficulty understanding what we mean. We have difficulty understanding each other. And part of that is just the limitations of language itself. So what we call ordinary language or people language, you know, um, is it's, it's kind of... Um, it's it's dense and it's tied in to only things that we can see. Things that we can make a determination based on survival, survival of the fittest, based on, on self-preservation, that it makes sense for that. And if it falls out of those parameters, then we, we consider it crazy talk or... We could, you know, we don't give it uh, its value. But there's a language that is spoken by those who understand reality, and they call it Dharma talk. And you can uh, not understand Dharma talk if the Dharma eye has not been opened. It just becomes crazy talk. And to give you an example of of it and how. Um, to give you some encouragement to allow the Dharma language and the Dharma view to arise. Um, we could say, for instance, there are different religions, different isms and different ists, and, you know, uh, I'm of this religion and I'm of that religion, and we consider them all to be separate and, and different because there are some aspects that are different. There are some processes and there's some ways to get to a certain point that are different. There's more than one way for me to get downtown. 
you know, I can take a short, I can take the short way, I can take the long way, I can take two ways at the same distance, but they're on parallel streets. I mean, they're different ways for me to get downtown. And if I try to describe a particular way, and I think that's the only way, then it only speaks of my limitedness in knowing the various ways. But for one who has traveled the different routes, either by curiosity or by necessity, the street was blocked off and what we're going to do, wait four days for them to open it up, I got to find another way. Through curiosity or necessity, we find, we go, we explore. And in this exploration, we find something else. That's not, not different in that it leads to the same uh, conclusion or the same goal. But it's not different and it's not not different. And by that I mean on a certain level, if we speak of religions, then we have these different religions and they espouse different things. But on a deeper level, they have an underlying essential nature that lead in the same direction. And then on another level, there is like religion doesn't exist at all. It's it's like a label, a made-up word that tries to define the various explorations and conclusions uh, that people have come come to know through their direct experience or through accepting or believing, you know, w- with trust and confidence on someone else's experience, even though they didn't have it. And we can always say, on one hand, you don't know what hot is. Until you put your hand in the fire. That's why when you take, tell kids don't touch hot, hot. And they don't know what hot is. You know. But on the other hand. We don't. You know. I don't have to. I don't have to fall out of an airplane. To know. That it's going to hurt when I hit the ground. I don't have to like try it. You know. And so. So we have to find the space between these two extremes. But if we have the Dharma eye open, there is a stream that we can follow, a flow that we can follow, because it has its own power to take us to its conclusion. And so I liken it to wading out into the water. And I say it so many times, but I'll say it over and over until we get it. Because we try to approach this thing through such an intellectual way and the mind can't get it. Because it's, it's not about the mind. You know that the heart is our biological, um, uh, as, as a, the, a biological aspect of our of our meanness, of our, our usness, this m- mentality, materiality, this phenomenon that I call me, it has more electrical and magnetic pulse and frequency and charge than any other organ in the body, including the brain. So when the Buddha was talking about the cheetah and he was talking about the mind, he's talking about the mind of the heart because that's what really governs. That's what really governs us and if we don't understand that then we reduce this practice from something that is uh, enlightening and awakening into something that is mechanical and we uh, try to figure out how to use it to make us happier with our things Uh, and so he says the first thing that we need to know is that we need to be heart focused. And if we look at what's happening in the world, it's all a matter of heart. With greed, hatred, and delusion all born in the heart. So it's a heart problem, it takes a heart cure. And so the Buddha talks about suffering, and we think we have a definition 
for that. He called it dukkha, and we called it, sort of translated it as as suffering. But I'm not really sure that we uh, understand exactly what he was talking about. And so I wanted to, and I'm not sure that we're really ready to abandon our love affair with suffering. We say we are, but every time there's an opportunity to do something that would relieve our suffering, to release us from our anxiety, to cut off our enmity with others, we don't take that path. That's the last resort. When we have no choice but to just give up and give in, then we do. But it can also be our first choice. And I don't think we realize how many voices we hear throughout our day that reinforces the need, the use for suffering. So I wanted to share some with you. Now people make use of suffering for specific um, social or personal purposes in many areas of our human life. For instance, in the arts. I was originally going to be a concert pianist. And what I found was nothing, I was such a perfectionist, that's why I'm so not now, but I was such a perfectionist, nothing was, it was never good enough. It was never good enough. And if somebody played better than me. I was depressed for months. You know, and we constantly talked and commiserated around our perfectionism. And there was something in the training that fed this, you know, this uh, need to be so perfect and the suffering and that the real music came out of our suffering. The same with the artists. I don't understand a lot of art I see because I just don't know what mind created a lot of this that we think of million dollar paintings. But, but you could see the agony in it. You know, you could see the, the disruption. You could see the attempt to express something that is all jumbled and confused and it's painful and we like out of this the writers you know if you go through all the arts I'm just telling you through all this I decided you know like I'm not going to be any kind of an artist musician because they all that's that that was like and I don't want to be that you know so I gave I gave it up but I gave it up because I could not break free of the pathos of the um the, of the whole uh, genre, the whole, uh, everything about it was to press in to our pain, to bring the emotion, to bring the emotion forth. And at the same time, I was on a spiritual path, a spiritual pursuit. And they were just like incongruent, you know what I mean? And so I gave that up. Then I decided, okay, I'll be a psychologist. <laughs> you know? So I go into and take my classes, and, uh, working on my uh, PhD, and uh, I'm looking around the room and I'm listening to these conversations, and I'm saying, everybody in this room needs a psychologist, <laughs> you know. So why am I here? I must need one too, or either I'm in the wrong classroom, and and I changed my major <laughs> again. <laughs> But I saw in every area, every arena of life where we excel to the highest degrees, this uh, integration of suffering that was supposed to produce our, our most magnificent pieces, our greatest masterpieces, our, you know, and I said, you know, that's, that's that inside outness of the world. So now I switched over to religion. <laughs> and then there was nowhere to go after that. You know, so I just came out. You know. And I said, you know, I need I need I need some help. I need some real direction. And so then I discovered this 
uh, path of Sakyamuni Buddha. And some say, well, he, you know, he invented Buddhism or whatever. No, he didn't. You know, he never said he didn't. Matter of fact, he said he didn't. Uh, he said he rediscovered the path of all the awakened ones. Now we've just narrowed it and put it into like his lineage and said this, this is Buddhism. But he said that this is the path of all the awakened ones. I don't care whether you're Jewish, whether you're Christian, whether you're Islamic, whether you I don't care. You know, I don't care whether you don't name it, don't call it anything, or whether you call it Buddhism. But he said it is the path of all the awakened ones. So the key thing is waking up. And so it means that we have to sever or change some of our relationships with things and the views that we have held. Not only in the art, in the entertainment, it particularly makes use of suffering. The violence in the media, the violent video games. When I look at these video games, I haven't seen any for a long time. But, I mean, we started with Pac-Man, and Pac-Man was like, and eating up the, 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 the grungy thingies, you know, and... Um, Next thing I knew, they have like the Station of Doom, and they have, and they have uh, uh, the things where they ha where you're robbing people, and and how many people can you kill, and how many people, you know, and these are the games that our kids play. So what do you think is uh, being established in them? This whole ins insensitivity, you know towards other living things, this insensitivity, uh, uh, disrespect for others, no social conscience. And it's, oh, it's only a game. It's only a game. Yeah. And I think even in some term, some kind of way, these uh, rites of passage, and I know it's going to upset some people because half of us in here are tattooed. But I'm talking about, you know, bodily. I mean, it's, it's painful. I know because I got some. They weren't tattoos. I've, I was in a spiritual uh, practice where we had to have certain initiations, 49 cuts on the back, um, a certain configuration cut on each arm, in the corners of the eyes, in the corners of the mouth, and... You know, different types of, of essences were rubbed into these things. You know, and when I was deciding, it was like no pain, no gain. You know, if you really wanted to get into the deeper things, this is what was required. So it doesn't matter whether it was around that or whether it's, it's, it's wanting to immortalize something in our flesh. But it's painful. And yet we have some kind of romanticism with it. In business. And in our various organizations, suffering is, is, you know, there's a, uh, a way that we work in our controlling our environments and controlling people, you know, that causes, uh, that causes a lot of suffering and we are aware of it. You know, it's the training we go through. Every place has a boot camp. You know, it's like nothing can be, you know, it's like we can't get anything out of anything unless there's some pain involved, you know. And we've, this is an ordinary part of every aspect of our life. I mean, we even have it in spiritual, in spiritual arenas, you know. That's why I didn't stay in a monastery. You know, it's funny because I didn't want to have to get up, you know, at five in the morning because I thought, you know, you know, I'm not feeling it at five. I'm feeling it at 8. And so at 8, I'm going to do better than I do at 5. Now, I wake at 3. But it's my, it's, it's a, a upward flowing thing and not an outward imposed thing. You understand what I'm saying? The difference is we think we have to impose things 
on people. Uh, instead of that, that, there's no other way, and you'll be a better man for it. You'll be a better woman for it. I mean, we have a love affair with suffering and with um, causing suffering. In the criminal context, people use suffering for coercion. And we say that's wrong, but we also for revenge. If you do something to somebody, that's pretty bad. But if you do something to one of mine, I want you to pay. We have, we want revenge. We want them to suffer for what they did to us. We have a love affair with suffering. In many interpersonal relations, there is that same element of suffering. That's, you know, we see this abuse in our, in our families. And some of us came up in abusive families. The grandfather was abusive. The father was abusive. And now I'm the son and I'm abusive. No matter what was said, that's what I saw. That's what was done. And even though I hated it and I saw no value in it, I do the very same things. And I can know that I have a problem with it. And yet I won't do whatever is necessary. To break it. Instead, I will hide it, and I can always find somebody who will help me hide it. In law and around legal matters, we have a need to punish people for punishment. Uh, you know, we have lawyers who hang out their shingle for pain and suffering. I had a phone call last night from someone and said that his nephew was killed and um, that the police did a sting and um, and they said it looked like he was reaching for something and they shot him six times. He said six times. He said that was unusual and cruel. He didn't have to shoot him six times. I said how do you know? I said were you there? It could have been been three police officers who shot twice. Could have been six who each shot one. And each one didn't know where the other one was going to shoot, but he was reaching for something. I said, we don't know. I mean, you're calling it cruel and unusual. Yet they were doing a sting around a meth operation, and he had the meth. I said, and he's telling me he's going to the NAACP and file a claim. I said, see, that's the problem right there. I said, don't waste your capital on that. I said, I said, whether it was your son, whether it was your nephew, or whether it was my son. Because we have too many good people who are, are at the hands of an abusive police force than to waste any capital we have on bringing about any kind of balance, uh, and justice on, on people who are making choices that destroy, that destroy lives. And I said, you should not do it. Uh, and so after we talked, he said, well, thank you. He said, that's why I called you, because I know you'd help me think through my momentary pain. I said, yes, I will. Because he had already created a relationship with the leaders in that group around a real issue. It was a real issue. His daughter went to school when she was 12, and they left a note on the desk, excuse my language, they left a note on the desk that said, you know, we hang niggas out here. And that was when they first moved into the neighborhood. And and they found out who wrote the note. And so he went for some help. And they went to the school system and they didn't do anything about it. And he said, now I'm coming to you like a father. And I'm talking to you about my child. And do you have any children? He said, yes, I do. And he said, well, I'm coming like that. And they had a conversation and they finally took some action out of months of just let it let it go, nothing. They brought everybody in and they started some counseling. That was a good use of the process. But because your nephew is drug dealing and they set up a sting, no, it's not a good use. And so I just said it. You know, but we have to be willing to look at these things and and to really know what is what in front of us. And so for a minute, and he was in such suffering. And then he said, no, you're right. Because I know 
You know, I'm not saying that anybody deserves to be shot and killed. Do you understand what I mean? But I'm saying that we have to develop some discernment and some clear seeing uh, to know what is the right response in every situation. And so uh, we like punishment. We like to see people who do something that we think is bad get punished. We have a love affair. Even authorities have used torture and justified it in order to bring closure to something. Uh, in order to get a confession. And sometimes people just confess because they don't want to be tortured anymore. If you have a choice between saying I did it, you know, and, and setting my feet on fire, just say I did it. You know, so how how much validity can you put in a confession that is elicited by through torture? But we think in sometimes in some situations these kinds of measures are justified because we have a love affair with suffering. And we know every time you have an accident, I don't care if it's a fender bender or what, you know, instead of being grateful that we didn't hurt anybody or grateful that we weren't hurt. You know, our car might have gotten banged up. Our car might have gotten totaled, you know. But the first thing we do is, I mean, we have ambulance chases. And then we have the, the lawyers who want to get you what you deserve for your pain and suffering. And sometimes I was talking with a, a couple and they had a real situation around negligence in the hospital. And they were doing something that needed to be done because it totally ended the person's life as they know it. And then they tried to cover it up, you know. And and they were filing a suit and they called me and Ponya Deep and asked us to come over and talk with them. And they said, now want to have this conversation with you because, you know, how do I act? What's my response as a Buddhist, you know? Uh, and we explained about uh, the mechanisms that are in place for error, you know, when it alters a person's life in that way. And you might have to go through the process to get it, but you can't, you know, put somebody's brain back together when you just blew it up by mistake. You know, so how do you, what are the resources needed, and how will you care for that person for the rest of their life? So it's a justified, you know, process. I said, but for one of them, it was the anger and wanting to make them pay. I said, but you have to get that part together because it's not so much what we do. It is the intention in which we do it. And I said, your intention is all tied together with anger. And it can't inure to any good benefit. And so they worked with that. In the news media, suffering is the raw material of news. If you don't have a story of suffering, you don't have any news. That's why you have to have the hungry children in Biafra. And you got to this. And, and uh, Apanya Deepa was remarking on it the other day. And they had a, a picture with the uh, the children. And they were hungry. And... He said, I wonder how they got all those flies to stick on that baby. You know, so this whole time that they were talking, the flies did not move. You know, and he said, uh, you know, the, I mean, nobody tried to brush them away. I mean, they're just a filming, just a filming. You know, I like the uh, Shriners commercial. It has the little boy that talks about the Shriners and all the things that he do, that they do. 
and it's in such gratitude. And he's saying, I have a life, might have one leg, might have one arm, might have had brain surgery, but I'm still here, you know. And in a way that they work with them and they bring forth what they're doing and they don't have to have the baby laying out there like half dead like that. But suffering is the raw material of the, of the news. And in personal contact, people use suffering for themselves. And they think it's going to be in a positive way. When you seen some people, like, how you know, I'm just here. You know, I'm just, I'm barely making it. You know, no matter uh, what you try to do to encourage them to make them feel better, they want to tell you everything that's wrong. They want to tell you, you know, it just doesn't, no matter how you try to lighten up the moment so that they can, can find their gratitude and, and be uplifted in heart, be uplifted from the inside out. They, they want you to know all the bad things happening. You know what? I don't need to hear because I got a hundred stories of my own. I really do. So when I listen to it all, know that it's an indulgence and it's coming in one ear and it's going out the other. Because if you're still breathing, you're still talking to me about you got something to be grateful for. It doesn't mean we can't have a conversation around things. But if, if we're doing that for the, for the pity, if we're doing that to be, uh, seen and known, if we're doing that, some people like, you know, if it's the only way that they can have, uh, any kind of relationship with anybody. It's the ones who come to, you know, boost them or to, or to talk with them or to hear their sad stories or the, and it reinforces that kind of thinking, that way of being, that oppressing, um, pattern. And so you very seldom, and, and I want you to know that it, that it is a great leap in compassion to, Pull that off of them and to encourage them to find their gratitude. It is an act of compassion, not one of not caring, but one of deeply caring. Lifting a person when they're low and uh, encouraging them to see the bright side of things. It doesn't mean that we don't understand their feelings of infirmity. No, some of us are convinced that we have to go through the Kubler-Ross's five stages of grief. And the fifth one is, yeah, you know, we can take a shortcut if we want to. But you have to really want. So it's about training the mind to want that which is expansive, that is lifting, that is light, that has levity, that sees the good in spite of the bad. It's not like not seeing what's not good, not seeing the obstacle, but not being utterly overcome by the obstacle. And it's in this way that we find our freedom, regardless of what's going on in the world. This idea of stepping away from suffering, mental suffering. I mean, there's also physical suffering. But it's this word suffering we need to do something with. We need to find this dukkha that the Buddha was talking about. It's not like suffering quite in the ways that we think of suffering. 
So if we stop using the word suffering because we have a connotation for suffering, we might be a little bit better off. So why don't we think about that he talks about the impermanent nature of all phenomena. That everything is in constant flux. And everything is dependent on some other thing. When this is, this is. When this isn't, this isn't. And he says, if you just look at the interdependent nature of things, we don't have to call it good or bad. We don't have to label it suffering or non-suffering. It's just what is based on cause and condition. That's a good place to start. So when something happens, we can think either what is the cause of this, or we can think how did this come about? And sit with it instead of running off in an emotional way with it. And to sit with something for clarity, you have to stop stirring up stuff. And so when the mind starts to run off, well, it could have been this, or they did that, or he said, the answer is to get still. And just let all the swirling thoughts settle down. And when they settle down, and when one is back in uh, charge, control of the emotions, when we've come back home to ourselves, He says, then we have set up the groundwork for there to be some true, unbiased investigation. And that we already have the right action to take for every situation. It can be known by us because on a certain level, we are part of everything that is. If you cut me open, you will not find Paniwadi inside. You find other things, maybe bone and blood and guts, and if you examine that a little bit closer, you won't find bone, blood, and guts. You'll find something else. You'll find, I don't know, atoms or something. If you open those, you won't find atoms. You'll find quarks. You open that up, you won't find quarks. There'll be something else until you get to nothingness. And everything that appears in the phenomenal world has its appearance or its beginning in the realm of nothingness, including us. So when we cannot figure something out, when we remain confused about something, we just have to go to the next level. And it takes becoming stiller and stiller. So so that all of the debris settles for the clarity to emerge. He said, we have an illuminating, bright mind that's based in true, absolute, absolute love and compassion that knows and can see and understand clearly what is the right action the right response now sometimes that means accepting defeat and giving the victory to others we're for that no 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 I believe in justice nope I'm not mm -mm, mm -mm. but sometimes it serves a greater purpose to take down even when you write (laughs) sometimes it serves a greater purpose To let a thing go. Sometimes it needs to be dealt with to keep a greater tragedy from occurring. How do you know which one is called for at this time? When the mind is all wrapped up and confused. When the mind is only thinking about what's best for me and mine. When I think that whatever I see and what I know right now is the whole story. 
is the sum total of the oh I know I know what that because something similar to there's something that looked like that happened to me before so I, I know what this is right here when we're not even willing to hear any other side or we're willing to hear it but it's not gonna make any difference it's in these kinds of ways that we have a romance with suffering and he gives us a very simple way out He says, sit until you come to that empty space. That empty space that goes beyond a concept of us to where there is neither me nor you. That empty. Because it's in that space that something needs to come forth. That's the cause and that brings comfort. To both sides. There are weighty issues. Before us. As a species. I won't talk about. Like as a family. We're not going to mention. Like as a community. We're not talking about as a city. As a as a, as a county. Or as a state. Or as a country. I'm talking about. Not just humans. I'm talking about global, globally we're heading towards a cataclysmic event. But we're not just heading towards it. We are propelling towards it out of our own hearts and minds. So we've created this problem. We're the only ones. Who can turn the tide. So what shall we do. Individually. And collectively. First of all. We have to get in. The right position. To be able. To do. And that is we have to come. To know ourselves. We have to come to. The decision. The conclusion. That we won't study war anymore. And I'm not just talking about armies and nations going to war. But I'm talking about the internal warring in our own hearts that seeks revenge. The warring that wants others to suffer. The warring that feels that pain is justified. That we all have. And it starts with a decision. Wanting to let it go. Where there is a will. You know the rest. There is a way. So we have to ask ourselves first. Am I willing? And if we're willing. Then Many of the masters, not just the Buddha, laid out many paths towards stepping in to that freedom. It comes when we have no enmity against anyone, anywhere. Then we understand that we each are the owners of our own actions. We understand that there is something that we do that contributes to the spiritual prosperity of our species when we solitarily do good. And if I don't believe that, then there's not much good that I'm going to be able to do to make the world a better place. But I tell you something happens when we make this decision. When we really start to see where I myself am just like them. 
It helps us to re- pull back on our judgment. And we start to see some other part. You know, we talk about good people do bad things. And, you know, bad people do good things. So that kind of like narrows the levels, maybe, the ground. And when the mind inclines towards trying to see what is good and support and reinforce that, as a people, we have a way of being drawn to that and attracted to that, and we do better. Someone sent me an email last night that said four months of incarceration you know they were they were doing a study of only four months of incarceration and how it completely rewired the mind in four months towards repetitive negative behavior and behaviors of cruelty and revenge four months and so they said that it is not beneficial for most of of people who have committed an offense to go to jail instead they need to be in, and it was a, a study done uh, using um, cognitive behavioral therapy, uh, CBT, uh, and it's it's a a, a a therapy that is rooted in in mindfulness and you know and creating new neural pathways. It said that's the way to uproot tendencies towards criminal behavior. When you put them in jail, even as little as four months. You have rewired them towards more criminal behavior and towards gratification in deviousness um, because of the associations, because of the the cruelty of the facility in the of the facilities and that sort of thing. So while we like coming to Dharma, you know we don't. Um, think we want to have anything to do with ex-criminals though, you know, because they're bad people. You know, I remember one time Pani Deepa talked about working uh, about a program. We were like just talking about, we weren't doing one, we just mentioned how difficult it is when uh, uh, a person goes to jail that, you know, they can't get an apartment, you know, they can't get a job, I mean, it's very, very difficult to get a job, you know, because they do a criminal background check, to get an apartment, it's very difficult, and, and even, like, where they could get a job is, like, in restaurants, but if the restaurant serves alcohol, then they can't work in a, in a restaurant that serves alcohol, and that's just about all of them, except fast food joints, I mean, you know, so it, like, cuts off every avenue of rehabilitation and matriculation back into the society. And so we were talking about how bad this is, you know. And we lost half the Sangha after that conversation. Because yeah, we feel we feel for people, but you know, like we don't really want any of those kind in our midst. But there's some of us to be sitting in jail right now about some things that we did. If somebody knew everything that we did. No, that's the truth. No. So we have to decide, you know, what is our role and what ro- what do what part do we want to play in making the world a better place? Do we just want to talk about it, have our teas and talk groups? Do we want to, you know, do we want to go inside and meditate and see the light and the form and the vision of the form and, and get our personal happiness on? You know, what are we willing really to give to make the world better, to help people heal? Where does our spirituality trickle down into ordinary life? Or is it just a fantasy in our head, a place that we go? to escape reality, to insulate ourselves. We have to ask ourselves these questions. So I'd like to ask you this week to take self-examination. 
to look deeply into your own heart and mind. To not be afraid of what you might see. You can just see something. I need to work on that. You can see, I didn't realize I felt that way. But you know, I, I do. We could see something not in condemning oneself, but in just happy that you recognize. You know, so now I'm not perplexed. Now I understand other good people who maybe don't always uh, respond in the most compassionate way, because I don't always either. You know, and I'm a good person. You know, maybe you can start to see things that way, and it allows you to give people a little bit more, you know, give them some slack. It it will help you to recognize when a person is suffering, and and it will replace your irritation with compassion, because you can see how they're all out of sorts. In the moment. And instead of saying, you need to get a step away from me. You could say, I can see that you're upset. Or you don't even have to say, I can Just change your tone. The minute you recognize that they're not going to be able to hear, la, 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 la. I'm not going to be able to hear anything else that you're saying. Change your tone. Put away what was so important for you to get across to them for another time. Can you just take down at this moment? And reach out to someone whose behavior indicates they're in great distress over this. Is it that important? Do I have to fix it now? Can I really fix it at all? Can I just tolerate it? I'm closing. But I tell you, it will instantly allow you to make changes. I was on an airplane and they uh, a lady said she couldn't get in her seat. So they told her to take another seat, which was right beside me. And she was saying she couldn't sit in the seat because, you know, those airplane seats are really and you sit like this the whole time like canned sardines. And it would cause her to be like sort of over in the aisle and the cart has to go up and down the aisle. And so she put her over against the window side and I'm sitting in the middle seat. So now she's all half in my seat. And so then I said, can I move to over there? And, you know, because I don't want to have to fly all the way to California like this. And she said, yes, you can move over there. So I move over there. At the last minute, a passenger gets on the plane, the very last passenger. And guess what? The seat she gave me was that passenger seat. So another flight attendant comes and he starts berating me. What do you think? What do you think this is? Who do you think you are? You can't just take any seat you want. I said, I didn't. But I said it like that. I said, I didn't. The flight attendant told me I could, I could take this seat. And it was a confrontational thing. And that's, that, that was, it was like that. Okay, and so the minute I said that, the woman who was there, I glanced over her and such a shame came over her. Because when I said, you know, he said, that's your seat, I pointed and everybody could see that she was a really big woman. And I realized that I had shamed her by my outburst because it put all eyes on her. And I regretted that I wasn't, that I hadn't uh, made the decision to tolerate a few hours of inconvenience. You know, it wasn't that important. It really wasn't. And so when I told the story, everybody was like, no, no, no. That flight attendant needed to be yada, yada, yada. And the woman shouldn't have been in all, all of that. I said, no, I understand how you feel. I felt the same way. It was my experience, remember? I felt the same way. But when I added it all up, when I looked at how much vitriol we just infused into a lot of people's consciousness, how even telling the story upset half of you then you can see the real damage 
that can be done. And so I had made a decision from that point on, no matter what seat I'm assigned on an airplane, no matter what comes or what goes, I can tolerate a few hours of discomfort. I, I, I could travel with Ben Gay. You know, it'd be all right. And so those are the kinds of decisions we may be called on to make. You have to decide, are you up for that? If you're not, don't be faking. Don't be playing. You know, just keep looking where you need to work on it a little bit more. And just having the willingness will create the opportunity, I'm going to tell you. And then in that moment, one day you'll decide right in that moment. Don't sweat the small stuff. Right in that moment, you'll see someone else's distress. And you'll think about how you feel when you're distressed, or when you're shamed, or when you're embarrassed, or when you've made a mistake. And you'll cover it with your newfound loving character. May you be well and happy and peaceful. May no harm come to you, no danger. And you'll always be able to meet the inevitable difficulties of life. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.